Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. I am your host, Tyler Cobble, and this is actually a new setup for us. Uh, this is the first time that we're actually even doing it in person um, for the longest time, Nathan, over uh, COVID. Obviously, we were doing these remote. Put so myself in a box for I know. if that helps. Yeah, this yeah. is uh, this is going to be good. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Um, so today, we're, we're with Nathan Weinberg, who uh, is, he is single-handedly uh, the reason I got my commercial real estate career started in East Nashville. So... Uh, pretty pretty big feather in his cap there. Sit up a little taller. Yeah, right? That's pretty yeah. good. All right. Shoulders just yeah. rolled back a little bit. I like that. Um, so I've known Nathan for many years. Really excited to be diving into market predictions with him. Um, he started off as a real estate agent uh, and then became a neighborhood developer, which obviously um, you guys have been following me for a little while. You know really what my I'm passionate about. That's about neighborhoods and community. And, and Nathan um, – he really helped spark that early on with with the way that he approaches and develops property. He's done some really amazing mixed-use developments all around town, and uh, he's one of the few developers that's actually kind of pioneering commercial condos in Nashville. I mean, that's not a product that you intentionally set out to, to yeah. provide, but um, – you know, it's uh, there's obviously a, a great need for that out there. So, Nathan, that was a, a very brief introduction of you. Uh, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I guess necessity is the mother of invention, right? So that that's why we get there. Yeah, I uh, that was a, a brief but really great introduction. I appreciate uh, being on here. Um, I've been in the real estate industry for about 13 years. Um, really started as a residential real estate agent. Uh, and made my way into where I am now, which is a residential real estate broker. I manage MW Real Estate Company, 22 real estate agents, working almost exclusively in the residential world. Uh, in addition to that, me and my business partner, Steve Maybe, uh, founded North by Northeast Development. That was about 11 years ago. And North by Northeast Development builds or has built about 130 houses in Nashville. And then it's a lot of houses. It's a lot of houses, not as many as some. Um, and then we've also done probably another 200 units of mixed-use residential and mixed-use development all over the city, West Nashville to East Nashville, which is where we primarily live and breathe. And I'm also into coffee. So we've got our coffee shop, Retrograde Coffee, and that's going to explode this next year. I'm super excited about it. So if you've got a caffeine fix, go check out Retrograde. Um, and I'm delighted to be here. I'm excited. My, uh, my biggest, uh, turn on in the world is watching people be successful. And so watching you have the success you've had has been remarkable. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here and, uh, explore that a little bit. Yeah. Well, that, that's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. Uh, many of y'all know I, I spend almost every morning at retrograde. So, uh, it's <laughs> by far my favorite coffee in the world. And, uh, it's, it's my second office is what I call it. Um, Deborah is saying hello from Texas. LG21 is saying nice. San Antonio here. So welcome, Texas. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So, I love Texas. Yeah. I mean, I used to go to Austin like five times a year before COVID hit. I was in Austin in March. No, sorry, in August. And it was my first time in Austin. I've been lots of places in Texas, but Austin was outstanding. That it's was a so great cool. place. And then San Antonio is... Um, I discovered the puffy taco in San Antonio. Have you ever had this? I haven't. So it's a taco, but like um, if a taco exploded in the deep fryer. Oh, cool. And so it's really good. So LG21, 
thinking about about dinner now. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, my uh, my dad lived in San Antonio years ago, um, so I've been to the Alamo and the Riverwalk, but you know Austin, <coughs> Austin far more frequently. Um, but San Antonio is only an hour and a half away, and it's You're growing. So close, yeah. I mean, like just as fast it seems. Um, so you know, it's it's funny. I go to Austin all the time because I feel like we're going into the future and getting a report of like, okay, well, where are we headed with Nashville? Right. And speaking of the future, that's obviously what we're going to be talking about today. Love talking about the future. Market predictions. Yeah. What's going to happen in 2022? You know, everybody said the world was going to end back in March of 2020, and that did not happen. In fact, it skyrocketed. So um, excited to see what you think about 2022, especially for Nashville and beyond. Um, ULI just released their um, emerging trends report for 2022, um, including top markets and, you know, what they think is going to happen. So we'll dive into that a little bit here in a bit. But uh, Nathan, what are your thoughts on Nashville in 2022? I'm as bullish as I've ever been about a place. Um, you know, we have the benefit in 2022 of being a, a year back from the election. We're on the upswing from a pandemic. And we don't show any signs of slowing down. There's, um, I was at the National Association of Realtors Conference until yesterday, actually. Um, and I was talking to Lawrence Yun, who's the chief economist for the National Association of Realtors. And we were talking, I cornered him in an elevator because that's how I get most of my work done these days. Um, and I asked him what, what he thought about Nashville. And his eyebrows went up. He's like, oh, Nashville, that's a great city. Um, I said, I know that. I live there. But what do you think? <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, he said that he thinks that we have a little bit of a glut of apartment building. I agree with that. I said, but I think that's probably going to shift things in another direction. He said, absolutely. And so what does that do? I think it probably forces incoming folks from all of the announcements that Nashville's gotten to move into other kinds of housing. And what does that do to the commercial world? Well, I think it probably has incubated a great number of office and retail concepts that have yet to be explored in Nashville. And so I expect 2022 to be a pretty exciting year, especially in the commercial world in Nashville. Let's let's unpack that a little bit. That's interesting that you say that because, what was it, four or five years ago, Nashville had another glut mm -hmm. of apartment building, overbuilding. Yeah. And everybody was saying back then, you know, we've overbuilt, the market's going to crash for multifamily, but it did almost the exact opposite. It was like these apartment developers actually knew what they were doing. Maybe they overbuilt for that year, but the following year, Nashville had the fastest lease up in the country in terms of multifamily. I didn't know that. That's exciting. It's, yeah. it's, it was 2017. So that's kind of when Nashville really, really yeah. took off. So what, what kind of uh, what do you think people are going to start looking at? Do you think that apartments have gotten so expensive they're going to start saying, "Oh, actually, a mortgage is relatively affordable"? I don't think they've got a lot of choice. Uh, you know, there's going to be a moment in time where there is a glut of apartments, and so the cost of living in an apartment will go down. But will it go down substantially enough to move the needle when interest rates, at least the Fed has indicated, that interest rates are going to stay the same through about the middle of next year? Will the Fed increase rates next year? Yeah. I, I don't know that they've got a whole lot of choices right now. Um, I do think Jerome Powell has done a pretty good job this year of managing an impossible set of circumstances, and the world can decide if they agree with me on that or not. Um, but 
I think that they have to, at some point, um, look at the market conditions and decide that inflation is a thing. Um, they know that, but they were hoping that the market could correct itself. I think the market is mostly capable of that, but we're living in a, in a time of exacerbated conditions. And so the market can only handle so much of that themselves. Right. We have to adjust those rates ever so slightly. When people see those rates going up, that's when things are going to change. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting moment where we all black out. We faded to black. Um, <laughs> yeah, we lost the camera for some reason, but we've got this other one. That's okay. Um, so what happens? I think that you know the, 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 the interest rates are going to go up ever so slightly, and that's going to that's gonna, um, spook, for our folks in Texas, that's going to spook people that are nearing the ends of leases or about to begin leases into finally taking action on residential loans. The reason that that's important from a commercial perspective is banks are making decisions based on their ability to hold loans on the books. And they got nervous during the pandemic that they were going to be forced to sort of start putting things into REO again. That didn't happen because we all knew it wasn't going to happen, but the banks didn't because the right. sky is always falling. But what, the, <laughs> what they will start to see is um, when people start applying, when new applications for mortgages go up, what they're going to start feeling is bullish about commercial lending as well. It's an indicator that more people are um, asset rich and are capable of satisfying commercial notes. And so I think that that's going to be a really positive trend commercially in 2022 and extending for the next three to five years, I think. It was really interesting to see last year. I mean, it, it was almost like the the catchphrase was, there's a lot of dry powder on the sidelines. I don't know how many times I've heard that. I mean, every, everybody has cash. It's, it's kind of wild to think that we went through all of that and the cash still didn't get spent because, I mean, that cash got frustrated, mm -hmm. right? Because everybody started expecting, oh, there's going to be all these foreclosures. We're going to come in and snap everything up like what happened in 2009, 2010, and it didn't happen at all. Do you think that the government stimulus program for real estate investors, for business owners, helped all of that? Um, I think that it prevented a lot of very, very, very bad consequences. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that there's a really important thing to look at that people haven't spent enough time thinking about the why of, and that's um, the rate of refinancing that's taken place over the course of the last year. I get asked the question about cash a lot. How, where are people coming up with all of this cash? Wh how, all of these people, where do they get it? Like, where does it come Everyone from? Everyone has right. cash. Right. Everybody has cash suddenly. Not just in the residential world, but the commercial world, too. And nobody's looking at the why. People have gotten so smart, in the, and kudos to all of them. People have gotten so smart in the last 10 years, they are finally recognizing that you should never use your own money. Right. <laughs> and so... The refinance rates have gone through the roof. And what is that money going towards? It's going towards the purchase of new assets and the investment in other types of real estate. Whether that's supposed to happen or not, that's what's happened. And I think that that's actually really good. So people are, I think, by and large, under-leveraged. Um, and they're utilizing the leverage that they do have to sort of uh, change their wealth building trajectory in a really good way. Right. It's funny. It's great that there's a lot 
of of better education out there. It's uh, we we did a video this past week reacting to Dave Ramsey and his take on commercial real estate. He had a lot of good points on it, but materially, I disagree with him when it comes to debt. I mean, I think that debt is a tool. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like an axe, right? You know, you can chop down a tree very fast with it, or you can chop your leg off. It just depends on how well you know how to use it. And I think that if you want to get out there and build wealth, you have to use other people's money. I mean, I started off on my career when I was 25. I could not have bought a building on my own without it. Yeah. Here, here we are now. It's a totally different world. Yeah, I, there's a problem because I, I think, I mean, Dave Ramsey is incredibly wealthy, and it's hard to argue with people that have built wealth like that. And he has had success. Right. And so I will never um, denigrate somebody who's had success like that. Good for him. Yeah. Um, How you build personal wealth and how you build professional wealth, I think, are two different things. And you also can't – somebody was saying this the other day, that we should be running – I was in a a meeting with a not-for-profit, and I'm on the board of directors of a couple of those locally – and I was having a disagreement about how we handle our endowment. And the person that I was talking with who had the other opinion said, well, I would like us to be managing our budget like we do my household. And I thought to myself, that's, I mean, I understand that because it's a simple way to manage your household debt. Whether I agree with how you manage your household debt or not is a totally different story. Right. But I don't put my business to bed at 8 p.m., and I don't have to make sure that dinner's on the table at 5 p.m. at my office, and I don't have to make sure that everybody's up at 6 a.m. At my, ha- at, at my office like I do at my house. And so fundamentally, those two things are very different. And so why should we treat the money in a commercial enterprise the same way that we treat it at our house? That doesn't make any sense to me. Now, money is money, so that's the one constant in there. Right. And we should treat it with a great deal of respect because it will turn around and bite you if you're not careful with it. But our ability to leverage ourselves is really important. How you leverage yourself is just as important as how much you leverage yourself. And I think that's a longer conversation later on down the road about strategies for leverage um, that are really important, talking about sort of the guarantee structure on your loans, um, how much of your personal assets are at risk when you make those sorts of commitments. Um, I think that's a, a, a really important um, variable to take into account. But people, by and large, should not manage commercial enterprises financially the same way that they manage their household. I think it's a bad idea. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. You've got your personal debt and professional debt. And professional debt, let's load it up. Let's take the risks. But as long as you're keeping your personal assets I mean, it's, you know, I, I live by the, the Burl method, mm-hmm. buy utility, rent luxury. So go out and buy the properties, the things that will make you money, rent your car or rent the things that just depreciate and don't bring you any assets. And personal debt is kind of like that. Why would you go take on personal debt to buy clothes or to buy things that you don't necessarily, a, a kayak or a motorcycle. Like mm-hmm. you don't need those things. You're saying you don't need to have them in cash. That's right. Yeah, I think I mostly agree with that. There's there's um I think owning personal assets, especially appreciating personal assets are really important. When you start to fall into a category of higher income earning, having depreciating assets becomes actually really good. It's very important. Yeah. Um and so that starts to be something that's worth thinking about. Um but I, I think I mostly agree with that. Yeah, yeah, you should. You should be investing your cash into the things that consistently bring you returns. Yep. 
um, and letting somebody else's money handle the things that do not. That's right. Yeah, I was told uh, many years ago by a developer that there is a certain point in a real estate developer's career where not owning a jet is actually costing you money. And it's because of the depreciation. I'd like to have that problem. I would like to have that problem too. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk more about how we can get to that problem in the future. So housing is going to change. What other thoughts do you have on what's going to happen in 2022? Oh, it's so good. So I'm going to... I'm terrible plagiarist, so I apologize to everybody. I, I'm going to steal a bunch of great ideas from other people here. Um, I think that we need to start paying very close attention to um, municipal legislation around iBuying because I Ooh. think that iBuying is going to – I don't think it's going to disappear. It's absolutely going to morph in the next couple of years around residential um, – but I'd start looking very carefully at iBuyers in the commercial sector. We already know that institutional investors are the largest player in residential housing out there. Institutional investors make iBuyers look like, you know, one-off rental people. Right. That is nothing. Like, Zillow Homes had nothing on the largest hedge fund in New York coming in and buying houses. Um, but where do they start looking? Because hedge funds don't like the risk of municipal legislation. They don't care for it. And so what will they start doing? Likely in the next, this is my personal prediction, so I didn't plagiarize this one. (laughs) I think that it is likely in the next year that many of these hedge funds and retirement funds and iBuyers start a, 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 a slow liquidation of their portfolios. I think that they're not gonna have a whole lot of choice. Uh, They don't want to have long-term rentals. Many of them don't. And so they had gotten into these markets on a short-term rental basis or some other sort of practical application, I think that's going to change in the next year. So they have to restructure their debt. Well, real estate is still a really strong asset class, but there's many kinds of real estate. And so my guess is that iBuyers start looking very hard at the commercial world. What are the commercial assets that they can hold and keep and will appreciate over the long term. It's a totally different pro forma. It's a totally different way of looking at real estate, but I'll bet you they're getting wise if they haven't already. That's really interesting. I've been thinking of that over the past few years because you watch what's going on with Zillow, and I've always thought residential agents are funding their own demise Mm. because they're paying to advertise on Zillow while Zillow is, they're unabashedly trying to get rid of residential Mm -hmm. agents. The interesting thing to me about commercial real estate is that the data is so siloed yeah. that you know there is no commercial MLS, right? So it's it's difficult to go out and get that data to where, you know, like in Zillow, they can say, okay, well, a four-bedroom in this zip code with this kind of garage and this big of a yard is probably worth X based on hundreds, if not thousands of of comparable sales. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they're working on, I mean, how, how do you think they, they could overcome that barrier in commercial? Oh, I think that it, I think look out. If you're a commercial yeah. real estate agent, I'd, I'd say be very cautious because who have you been giving all your money to for the last five years? Yeah. Loopnet, CoStar. Loop, yeah. Well, guess what CoStar owns? Everything. Apartments.com. Apartments.com. 10X. Guess who they're coming after? Yeah. They're probably going to Send me a season assist letter just for mentioning them on the hey, show. I don't think so. I think they want you. They like you. Um, yeah. CoStar is a massive player, and I don't. What's so great about it is nobody saw it coming. Some of the, some people did, 
Nobody saw CoStar doing what they were doing. CoStar, four years ago, bought a little company out of Hendersonville, Tennessee, called yep. Smith Travel Research. And at the time, it was time, a big transaction. Five hundred million dollars they paid for this little company, which was a global company. They were the only travel research company that was a global entity. But they only had like what twenty or thirty employees or something. Yep. Something crazy. Small. It was very small. Um, Randy Smith owned that company. Very smart guy, an accountant, who about three decades ago said it's impossible for hotels to create rate structures when they don't know what their competitors are doing. And so I'm going to create reporting based on that. And so what did he do? He created a sales. He's so smart. And if anybody knows who Randy Smith is, um, you know how smart that guy is. He went out and he created a global sales force that went to every hotel in the world and said, listen, <clears throat> give me all of your data. I'm not going to pay you for it. You're going to give yeah. it to me. And then in addition to giving it to me, you're going to pay me for everyone else's data. Which is exactly the CoStar model. Right. And so what did he do? He got everyone's data for free, and then he had them pay him so that he could give everybody everybody's data. It was a brilliant move. And it wasn't conniving. It was just smart. They all needed it. Yep. They were happy to pay for it. And what did that do? It made the hotel industry better. Uh, it made them more capable of forecasting. And somebody out there is going to at you and say, well, Nathan said this, but look what happened to the hotel business. Yeah. Yet nobody could predict the pandemic, right? Um but Randy Smith did that. And so what did, what happened? He took a little company that had 50 employees that had never had a real tech evaluation ever, not once. And he named his number. And CoStar saw the value of it. So what did CoStar do? They started aggregating hospitality, residential, industrial. Then they started bringing all of their LoopNet stuff into the play. So where are they going next? They want to be... Zillow, but they want to be the smart version of it, and they can. They they are um, in twenty twenty two. CoStar is going to become. I'm I'm reluctant to say the most feared because I don't think that that's fair. Um, I think it's pretty fair. <laughs> I well, I I think having a healthy fear of of competition is good, but get ready. They're going to change the way commercial real estate is practiced, and maybe not in a bad way. Yeah. Uh, Bruno is saying, Hey, Tyler, what's going on, Bruno? Uh, travel your own paths and greets. Welcome to the show, guys. Uh, if y'all have any uh, questions um, about the market, about commercial real estate, about Nathan and his past, feel free to jump in the live chat. Be nice. Uh, yeah, be nice. Happy to have that conversation with you. Um, I think that's very interesting. And that's one of the points that uh, you all I actually pointed out in their emerging trends was that, um, you know, commercial real estate tech, CRE tech, is going to start to mature. And it's about time, right? I mean, commercial real estate for the longest time has been stuck in the 1980s. I mean, mm -hmm. I swear up until a couple of years ago, you know, people were still just writing stuff on paper and cold calling. Um, so it's interesting to see that I actually, we actually stopped using CoStar a couple of years ago. And that was one of the better decisions that we've ever made. Because it's funny enough, because of Chad Grout and Urban Grout, so Chad is a uh, so Urban Grout is a brokerage here in, in uh, originally in East Nashville, um, but he never gave his data to anybody. Yeah, and 
when I first got into the business, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that? And now I get it. Mm-hmm. He, he already knew what was going on. Chad Grout's about 12 feet tall, by the way, if anybody's <laughs> wondering. Yeah. yeah, and he loves tacos. So take him a breakfast taco if He's you see him. Tacos. <laughs> um, Here, you want to hear something interesting about yeah. real estate tech? So, you know, National Association of Realtors is the largest trade association in the country. has over a million members. Makes the NRA look like small potatoes. Um, the National Association of Realtors has spent collectively in the last year maybe $20 million on real estate tech. Do you know what Zillow's budget was last year for real estate technology? I bet it was over a billion. No, well, that you're better. <laughs> it wasn't that good. $350 million. Okay. God, the amount of money that has been dumped into real estate technology in the last three years is incredible. And that's why we're starting to see people take take notice. Um, and I think that we're starting to see a whole new segment of players. People are trying to solve problems that we didn't know existed. Um, people see opportunity where it never was before. These companies, Zillow, Opendoor, Offerpad, Redfin, um, they've done some big stuff to change the way that the real estate world works. And for better or for worse, I think you know they've focused on the residential sector, largely because it's an easier sector for them to break into. Totally, it's very simple. Uh, it's less, by and large, it's considerably less sophisticated than commercial, and, and it's based mostly on comps, not necessarily on a cap rate. Or that's on a right. Yeah, it doesn't take into account future value, right? Um, it takes present value at best, and so they focused <laughs> on that. But I think that now they're starting to set their sights on how do we, in fact, I know this. So here, this is the big prediction for 2022. Predictive analytics are going to be the most important player in real estate technology in the whole of 2022. So the data that we're giving to people now is going to change the way that real estate technology is operating in the next three to six months easily. And what is going to happen with that predictive analytics? We're going to start seeing – people get terrified when you use the word artificial intelligence. Yeah. But we're going to start seeing much more accurate algorithms that are pointing us in the direction of where we need to go. I know you're an urbanist. And so one of the guys at uh, the NAR conference said this, um, 5G. In to- 2022, 5G is finally going to be fully released. It's out, there. it's out there. I've got it on my phone. It's had hiccups over the last few months. And what does that mean? It's usually because they're making the big changes that need to happen to make it work. 5G is 100 times faster than its most recent predecessor. It allows us and enables us to do all sorts of things that we couldn't do before. So as an urbanist, you and I have had this conversation about parking. Yeah. Um, I'm, an, I'm an urbanist too. I hate parking regulations. I think par- you should not be able to have a car in the city. I think $100 Unpopular a parking opinion. spot an hour. Like, right. Let's go. Um, and so what does predictive analytics do for us? It allows us to identify underutilized pieces of real estate in the urban core and recategorize them in a way that makes them more useful. And then it allows us to have all of this interconnectedness, our cars, our houses, our phones, our laptops, our tablets, whatever it is. And so we don't, autonomous vehicles are there already. What happens in the next year is going to be really exciting because your car is going to be able to drop you off 
at your office in the next yeah. two years. Guarantee you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got a Tesla, so we're not far off from that, which is super cool. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting what's going on in the world of prop tech. Uh, here's what Urban Land has to say about that. Uh, about the maturation of prop tech. So the pandemic provided new impetus and scope for adoption of property technology as the need to better assess and allocate investments and to understand and manage properties accelerated sharply. It's That's what that is. It's exactly what it is. So yeah. we've got, uh, we're doing a tower in Chattanooga and a renovation. And I want to hear more about that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, we got to talk about yeah. it. And so the uh, we're, we're working with a technology consultant that is helping us put all of these sensors and stuff that I've never even thought about in a building so that we can almost fully manage it from here in Nashville. Beautiful. So you think about that for future value, we'll be able to sell it to a firm out of New York that won't have to worry about property management. They might not ever have to come see it. Ever. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we're already starting to see a lot of that because you can take a 3D tour. Mm -hmm. You'll send somebody out there to inspect it. You have all these sensors on the building that'll tell you if they're working. Yep. And if, if the machines that they're monitoring are working, I mean, yeah, they may never have to see it. Well, VR, I think, is going to be a big thing in the next year. I think people are going to do walkthroughs via yep. VR. I spent the last year learning how to do 3D tours of, I know you did too, of properties. And that's going to just disappear. It's useless. Yeah. Like now, now we'll go into the VR world and you'll put your headset on and you'll walk through the building and you'll make decisions based in real time in VR. I think it's super exciting. That was so cool, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> the getting into the 3D tours. So oh, when, yeah. When the, it was what? When the pandemic hit? Uh-huh. Yeah. When the pandemic hit, Nathan got me into shooting 3D tours with Matterport. The, I mean, talk about property technology. That is exactly what that is. Matterport, when they first came out, uh, well, when I first heard of them five or seven years ago, you had to get like a Google specialist to come out and shoot your property. And they were these giant cameras. I mean, they were huge. And now they're the, they're the size of your phone. Yeah. And uh, even less. They look yeah. like a, I don't know, like a like, mini. Yeah, like that. Like this. It's, I mean, just like the, the mouse. Yeah. I mean, they're tiny. And uh, you just go out and you press a button and it shoots a 3D tour. Yeah. The dollhouse effect in 3D photography is pretty incredible. VR is going to make it look like that. You and I are going to feel bad that we dedicated so much time learning how oh to do gosh. that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It'll be, uh, yeah, we'll have, our kids will be like, you did what? What's that thing? You had to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You had to di actually dial and turn the rotor right. on the phone. Right. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll have to get Adam on the show. So uh, you haven't met Adam yet, but he is our investment analyst. And he was most recently at Tractor Supply work he he's kind of spearheaded the implementation of artificial intelligence into their programming Love so that. based on which it's also scary how accessible ai already is oh yeah like we're talking about implementing it into it's the in stuff that we do yeah oh 100 percent. yeah um so he he spearheaded the implementation of ai and they they uh had the ai working to determine where the next best tractor supply location would be based on tractor grease sales. And well, accounting. so that's the predictive analytics I talk yeah. about. Yeah. It's really interesting watching these things get better and better. Um, what's interesting, people are going to ask, you know, what about now that Zillow's had this imploding, what's going to happen to Zestimates? Well, I think they're mostly going to go away. They've gone away in many markets because they're inherently wrong. But I don't think that was a miscalculation on Zillow's part. I think Zillow did that and their iBuyer program largely on purpose. 
I think there's something at play there that even I don't understand that they are angling. They were looking for different ways to look at data and they were willing to take a third of a billion dollar guess on it to figure out what happens. Of course. And their venture capital is still with them despite losing a third of a billion dollars last quarter. So something else is going on there. Yeah, well, so the the conspiracy theory that we've been discussing internally is that their backer, basically what they wanted to do was go out and have Zillow test it all out, and now Zillow's going to fold on the houses and sell them off to a hedge fund. Because, I mean, they've got hundreds, if not thousands of houses, and so the hedge fund is obviously going to buy them up at pennies on the dollar at a bigger uh, a bigger volume, which means they can get better financing on it. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. Whether that's the case or not, something's going on because their their yeah. analytics are not off. Yeah. That's the interesting thing to me. I mean, they've got some of the best data in the country. Yeah. Well, they have all the data. Um, I, I don't know that that is what's going to happen. I, well, if that was the plan, I think they're probably changing it now. Los Angeles County last month, I think it was last month, started bringing up legislation around banning institutional investors purchasing single-family homes. That would li- largely be challenged in a court of law. But when you are in, a, in the midst of what is aptly described as a housing crisis, and it's not just in Nashville, Boise, Idaho saw the fastest growth for residential housing prices anywhere in the country, and the affordability calculator in Boise doesn't exist. There's there's no such a I Affordab- affordability is not a thing. Right, it's not a thing. <laughs> and I you know, I I spent high school and college in Boise. Um and I will tell you that it's a beautiful city. And when I left there, you could and it was a busy city then. Micron Technology, which is a huge employer there, um was the primary employer, but you could still buy a very nice house. And I get it, like I'm an old man now, but and this was 17 years ago. You buy a really nice house there for less than $300,000. I've got a friend who's a real estate agent there, and I've been having him send me stuff every week. I don't, I mean, I think that the average home price in Boise now is closer to $600,000. That doesn't surprise me at all. So, a threefold increase in less than 20 years is pretty impressive. Um, and I don't know how the commercial market's reacting, except to say that I asked for commercial listings and I didn't get any. Yeah, I bet there aren't any. Yeah. So, but why aren't there any? I think that it's partially because they do what most commercial brokers do, which is they keep them in their pockets, their silos, like you talked about. But I also think that they failed to plan. I don't think there's sufficient building around commercial assets. And so, what does that do? It's going to start forcing migration around jobs. Right. To where? Well, to the outskirts of Boise, to surrounding counties, cities, states. You might start seeing Montana and Wyoming becoming pretty attractive building opportunities in the future. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds because the the demographic that it at least to me that it seems is is largely going to Boise are wealthy Californians who are getting That's what they think too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. And so uh, you know, I, I would imagine you're gonna start seeing commercial prices skyrocket as bigger national businesses or just luxury businesses come into the market to serve that demographic that's probably true uh let's see we got a couple of comments here in the live stream yeah. hey from uh, minnesota yeah ozzy hey I, from minnesota i grew up in st paul uh, did you really mm-hmm. that sounds cold it, right now <laughs> uh real career young money is saying if commercial real estate or if commercial interest rates rise say five to seven percent 
uh, versus three to four percent by twenty three to twenty five. How would this affect asset values? Would potential rents offset interest costs? And how would that change what deals you do? That's a really good question. It's a great um, question. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I think that, yes, it would. Um, it, to, it, so it will absolutely affect um, what we buy and how we buy it. Money's more expensive. M money's more expensive. But it doesn't kill the deal. Um, the nice thing about commercial real estate is you start to factor in the, the, the time that you intend to own an asset. And so, you know, you may have anticipated a three to five year time span and you made it a value calculation based on that. Now your time span may be more like 10 years. And so you're buying different asset classes um, at different, different pricing, but that pricing is taking into account the time value of money and how long it's going to take you to recoup that. So Here's the thing, like I'm not an alarmist, and I think that that's really important in any real estate. If you're going to be in real estate, you can't be an alarmist. No. The banks are there for that. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important to take the knocks as they come to you. And so we've been dealing with that here in Nashville for a long time when we build things that we think can be used a certain way, and then the city says, well, yeah, but Actually. not anymore. Um and we don't go running with our tail between our legs. We find a different way to utilize it. Well, it's the same way when we buy things. We have to buy things under the guise of the worst-case scenario. And sometimes the worst-case scenario is you have to hold it for a long time. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's that you don't buy it at all. But I don't think that that's going to happen because we still have scarcity. So even if interest rates rise, scarcity drives up prices. It's a supply and demand curve. And so the demand remains the same. The number of people that are looking to buy has gone down ever so slightly, but there was a glut of those people there already. And so I don't know that the values change that much. I think it'll have a neutral impact on properties in markets like Nashville, Austin, Raleigh, Durham, Tampa. But you look at New York or LA or Chicago, I think it directly has a negative impact. Because That's true. it's already difficult to own property in, in those areas. And you've got a lot of investors that are fleeing. I mean, that's one of the reasons Nashville's growing so fast. You've got towers being built here by people that are from Texas and New York and California because it's so much cheaper and easier and more profitable to own real estate here than it is in their own states. And so I think, I think it could accelerate that a little bit more. Um, I, I will say this too. I mean, 5% is not high. My, no. The first syndication deal that I ever did, which was in June of 2019, it was not that long ago, we had a five and a quarter interest rate on that, and we thought we were stealing the money. Yeah. Yeah, it's un not uncommon. I mean, if you're going to be involved in a, in a commercial real estate deal, five, six, seven's getting high, um, but that's not an uncommon thing. It, you know, a lot of it also depends on how much leverage you're looking at. Right. And so, and what your guarantee structure is, which we alluded to earlier. Here's the interesting thing. I think that the pandemic taught commercial developers that creativity is key. And so we're starting to see this in New York City right now. And I think it's a, it's a testament to creativity in commercial real estate development, which is people fled New York City. Like, I mean, the kind of exit... You've seen the 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 movie the like movies where like a tidal wave is going to hit the city. Yeah. And That's the kind of flight that happened out of New York City, and what happened? Well, luxury real estate buyers from all over the world bought stuff, but they bought 
mostly residential things. And so you had all of these vacancies in the hospitality world, restaurants, hotels. Um, And then in office spaces, people realized that they didn't need to own offices anymore. They didn't think they did. And so those commercial owners, landlords, pivoted, and they started to create mixed-use spaces or shared-use spaces. And we're starting to see, for the first time in 24 months, the population or the, the occupancy rate in New York City is finally rising. And so I think that's really interesting because it's not that the cost necessarily changed. In fact, many of these places got carved up into little tiny microspaces. So technically, the cost per foot has gone Got through up. the roof. Yeah. Um, what has happened is because they're smaller spaces or they're more practical spaces for those people, more and more people are willing to put leases on them. Also, I think that people are getting creative with the lease structures. So people are starting to, landlords in particular, are willing to take risk on shorter-term leases, one year to three years instead of five to ten that's something that I think most banks yet don't like. But what they're doing in turn, we're seeing this right now in Nashville, people are asking for security deposits that are two and three times what they might have asked for previously. And the tenants are willing to pay them because on a monthly basis, that works out really nicely. Yep. It still works out really well. Yeah, I'll tell you uh, just from our experience, I mean, because we do micro units. That's kind of what we are focused on uh, at our development company, Hamilton. Banks do absolutely do not like that. They like security. Um, they like to play it safe. They're chicken little. I mean, every mm-hmm. time you say this guy's fine, I'm just like, they're chicken little. Um, what they don't understand is that when you have these smaller micro units, I can increase my rates 5 7 10% a year because we can. Mm-hmm. And the tenants end up staying just as long. I actually had a really interesting conversation this past week with an apartment owner here in Nashville. He owns about 950 doors. And ever since day one, they've only done month-to-month leases with all of their tenants. That's interesting. And so I was like, okay, well, how do you get around that? Well, of course, you know, they've, they've owned these units generationally, so they don't have to worry about the banks. Uh, I think that his grandfather started buying them up years ago. So, of course, that helps, right? Because it'd be very tough to acquire um, and go tell a bank, hey, we want to do this month-to-month. Mm-hmm. But what they said is, we just take good care of our tenants. We give them the flexibility. And we have about the same amount of turnover as any other apartment complex does. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, getting away from this sort of hard-nosed, that doesn't work. We learned, you know, the there's a re, you don't have to agree with it, but there's a reason the CDC did the eviction moratorium. And that's because commercial landlords have been very trigger-happy to throw people out of properties. And it wasn't a good idea. Now, how the CDC handled that is a political topic for another time. And National Association of Realtors was dead set against it. I think mostly I am too. Um, but what we learned during the pandemic is that it wasn't that people didn't want to pay. They had an inability to. So restructuring how they pay became a really important tool. So right. what's the commonality between all of this? Creative thinking. What's a creative way that we can do this? Well, maybe I was paying a property manager to sit in that building all year long. Yeah. And they didn't they weren't generating value for me. Maybe I don't need it. Don't need it anymore. That person can't pay their rent, but they've been living here for five years. They know more about this building than any property manager I could put in there. We're gonna find a way to restructure their rent 
but give them some added responsibility. So that's one just sort of example of that. I think you're right. I mean, people look at these, uh, they look at the way of commercial real estate and they say, no, this is the way you do it. And I think that's so wrong because if the guy down the street is going to be more creative and flexible than you, he's going to win. He's yeah. going to get the tenant. But, you know, we look at, um, so we when we hit the pandemic, we were managing, I don't know, over 500,000 square feet. Um, and we collected 98 or 99% of our rents. Because yeah. what we ended up doing was anybody that couldn't pay, we either helped them through the idle process, all that kind of stuff, and, or, depending, we ended up giving them half off, you know, a month's rent, but we tacked on a month or two months at the end of their lease at an increased rate yeah. to help make up for it. And they were fine with that because, like you said, it wasn't that they didn't want to pay. There was literally an inability to pay. Yeah. And so both parties won in that scenario because we got – you know, what we needed by just giving them a little bit of flexibility right now. Yeah. So, um, all right, here's a, uh, Patrick, what's going on, man? Patrick's actually a broker okay. um, at the Cobble Group. Uh, is there a particular emerging niche in commercial real estate that you would pay attention to in 2022? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, yes. So in 2016 or 2017, this little company out of San Francisco, um, had an interesting idea and they said, and you're going to see, this is an emerging theme in creative thinking around real estate, but they said, what if people who lived in places, houses, apartments, whatever, had the ability to sublet those spaces on a nightly or weekly basis? So I'm going out of town for a business trip. And so that little company was Airbnb. Yeah. And so what did they do? They, continued even through the pandemic to gain market share what are they doing they own nothing they have no their no debt, liabilities right yeah. no liability well they do have liability but that's it's a covered liability so right. the risk is managed um but they they basically said give us this let let us help you you're going to manage it we're not even really going to manage it you for do you all the work you're going to do all the work um we're going to take a percentage of that and when we take a percentage of it, you'll get ratings and you'll be able to rate people as well. And so what happened? The pandemic hit and everyone panicked and they, the hotel industry went in the toilet. Well, Airbnb did not. Airbnb saw their numbers go up year over year and their share prices continued to rise. So why is that important? Well, I think that in 2022, Airbnb is likely to find a way to break into the commercial world as well. Be interesting. So think about where all, and this this is a wild idea. I'm probably wrong about this, but think about this. So I own an office space on 30A in Florida, on the Panhandle in Florida. And I know now that I don't have to be in an office all the time. So me and my family are going to go someplace else for a few weeks. But my office is set up for someone to work in. And Tyler says, well, I've got an office here in Nashville, but I don't have to be in my office, and I'm going to go hang out on the beach for two weeks, but I need an office to work out of. So I think it's likely you start to see a commercial version of this Airbnb. And I think that hotels can play a huge role in this, by the way. So I think the hotel industry as a whole is fundamentally changing in a good way, I think it's needed a change for a long time. But I think you're going to start staying at hotels in the next five years 
and your room is going to look very different. Your room is going to be set up for somebody not just to sleep in, but it's going to be set up for them to have meetings in there. It's going to be set up for people to have high connectivity. Um, It's going to be, and in fact, we're seeing this in some of the bigger brands right now, this sort of idea of on-demand concierge services around business travel. So office chair, I'm going to be in town for work. I need an actual office chair because I sit at my desk all day. Or I need a conference table and I need catering in my rooms and all of these things so I can have meetings. So I think hotels are are emerging as a way for companies like Airbnb. And by the way, all those hotel rooms, they're already on Airbnb. Yeah. That's Airbnb was smart. They went to all they went to Expedia and they said, Hey, let us help you. We have market share. Like let us do this. Put your listings on Airbnb. See it all the time. Right. And so I think that that's likely the niche. If I if I was a betting person, I'm kind of a betting person. Um, <laughs> if I was a betting person, I would start spending money on the sectors around sort of what we might formally have called business travel, um, but start looking at the brands that are thinking creatively around this. And airlines are a big player in that. Start looking at that. Yeah, we should uh, start this company, and I'm just spitballing here. Uh, trying to come up with names, but what about MySpace? Oh, <laughs> yeah. You might have to buy that from Justin. Doesn't he own that? <laughs> you think he still owns it? I'm sure he does. Who, so who would have bought it from him? <laughs> yeah, right. Gosh, that's that's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great Yeah, question. I agree. I mean, I think uh, that is a great question, Patrick. I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of that. Again, that's kind of around PropTech, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's software that's solving a solution. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of other, it, 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 it depends on your market, right? I think I think industrial in Nashville is going to continue to be huge. I'm not even oh, in yeah. industrial at all. I mean, we don't have any assets. I would love to be in industrial, uh, but we just haven't focused on that. And it's so it's so different. But Nashville has become a logistics hub for the country, Everybody, right? I mean, right. Yeah. yeah. So you think about that. I mean, you look at how much industrial has gotten developed here over the last few years. It's it's unreal compared yeah. to what it was. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it takes time for innovation to happen. Um, as it turns out, it doesn't take nearly as much time as we thought it did, right? <laughs> Who had heard of Zoom before the pandemic? Nobody. God, they exploded. Right. Nobody had heard of that. I, I think they caused the pandemic. Right. They're yeah. the only ones to benefit. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, if you're going to put money into institutions in the next year, Look at the institutions that are ready to make acquisitions and are interested in mergers because that's how most of the tech around commercial and residential real estate is going to happen in the next couple of years. These big companies are going to start gobbling up the little guys. We're already seeing it. Facebook has been doing that for years. They've been buying small companies that either enhance their their core product or put a threat to it. Um, And Apple's done that as well. IBM, um, Microsoft. Here's the best one. I love this. I somebody asked me yesterday or day before yesterday, um, what is this oracle that you speak of? Um, and it felt very much like the Matrix movie. What is this oracle? Right. Everybody has heard of Oracle, but nobody can say what Oracle does. That's such a great point. Right. Well, I'll tell you what Oracle does. So Oracle is the engineering architecture behind every single consumer electronic product and commercial electronic product that exists on the planet. So why 
did they continue to see market share grow during the pandemic? Because people were buying things. The more time, like they're an effectively recession-proof company because they went in and they said, we're going to build all of the stuff that nobody sees. You don't even have to put our name on your product. We don't care. We don't want it. We don't want it. We want you to pay us a royalty. Every time you sell a can of LaCroix and your machine that built that can operates, you're going to give us a quarter of a penny or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And so Larry Allison, smartest man on the planet, and nobody saw it coming. They, they have more data than probably every data aggregator out there combined. It's incredible what they, what they own and control. Look for Oracle to make some big moves in the next year. Oracle is the example that I use to prove that office space is not dead. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, look at how much data and how big and how just smart. I mean, look, the average employee there is is a top-notch employee. Mm -hmm. And they still chose to open an 8,500-employee campus in Nashville. Yeah. I mean, they didn't, they didn't do it lightly either. And that 8,500-employee campus – I mean, the dirt sold for almost a billion dollars, didn't it? I mean, it was something crazy. It was it was insane. I don't think yeah. it was sixty five acres. It was big, and it had to have gone for it's a billion dollar project. That's what it is. Yeah. So I think that it probably sold for I don't know close to two million an acre. So I mean, that's still that's a massive number. Well, and it tells you what how they feel about the future too. They're bullish on the future, so they're willing to spend the value of that acreage yeah. ten years from now, but they're willing to spend it today. Because they're in for the long haul. Yeah. Um, and they hardly negotiated with the city of Nashville and the state. They just said, sure, whatever. If you want to give us something, that's great. Because they don't care. The tax incentive isn't of value to it, them. It's fine. It's it's a rounding error. Well, look at it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's the epitome of what's going on in Nashville. Yeah. People from other states or other cities are coming here and they're going, you're telling me I can get 65 acres across the river from downtown for $2 million an acre? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't care what else you have to say. Right. I'm in. Sign me up. Yeah. I mean, it's and, and Nashvillians are sitting here going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that they would ever even think about spending that in yeah. River North. Right. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, and, you got to get out of your own way. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I, think that that's, uh, I think that that is why all of the major developments in Nashville now are outside groups. Well, and you've been a, a, a pioneer a little bit of this, but I think adaptive reuse is really like an emerging trend. We're starting to see more and more of it. Um, I'm involved in three adaptive reuse projects in, in around the country right now, which is exciting. There's more and more of that. You're doing a giant one in Chattanooga, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, the idea of turning these things back into living, breathing things, it's incredible. Banks should love adaptive reuse projects. And if they don't, they, they better figure out how to, because like, that's a great, think about all of the vacant commercial, go to Detroit. Gosh. Detroit is the mother of adaptive reuse cities. And the things that are happening in Detroit right now are really exciting. Yeah. I mean, you've got some big developers up there that are making moves. Yeah. And it's because they could get market share. And they're like, you know what? Now we're going to actually spend our time doing this right. And and the thing that I love, I mean, there's, there's obviously a, a very fine balance between market share and a monopoly, right? We can go into that for days. Mm -hmm. But you know, one of the main reasons that we invest so much along Dickerson Pike is that every project we do positively, hopefully, positively affects all of our other projects. Yeah. 
And so, you know, as a, as a developer, it's just a great strategy because I don't have to wait on other people to come out and do their own stuff. I can just keep doing my things. And I know that eventually somebody else is going to say, oh, yeah, okay, let's buy 13 acres and build 300 apartment units here. Yeah. And I own the properties right next door. That's the right way to think about it. My next door neighbor, who I, will, I won't name, um, <laughs> he's a super nice guy, but I, I won't name him. He's been doing this for 25 years in East Nashville, yep. buying pieces of property and just sitting on them. And people say, what are you going to do with that? I don't know. I don't know. Something. I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And, 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 and everybody thinks that he's, you know, am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, I don't yeah. care. Everybody thinks he's an asshole for doing that, but he's not. He's just so smart. He yeah. knows what's going to happen in the next 20 years, and he's going to cash his check. He's now, right now, he's starting to cash those annuities in. Yeah. And it's exciting to watch because he paid nothing for them. Yeah. Um, you look at the tax records, and he stole all – I mean, back then, everybody was like, you're crazy. He paid market rate for them. The market was in the in the toilet. And so, I mean, kudos to him. Yeah, it, it, it's really – finding these sort of gems um, – here, I want to say one more thing about Detroit. Cause it's, yeah. Like, I think it's one of the most it's so interesting. Well, so it sits on a big lake, right? But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the Great Lakes, and that means that it has a connected waterway all the way out to the ocean. So, so as we look at the shipping challenges that exist in the Port of Los Angeles, as an example, We've been building, building these massive, massive ships, right? right? Because, because the, the most efficient, efficient moving, moving lots of lots things, things long, long distances. Well, they can well, only they go, go in certain, certain directions direction, at certain times of the year or certain, certain places. And so, and so that, 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 works. that works. And I'm not, I'm not a, a logistician, so, so, so somebody, somebody out there, there lot a lot smarter, smarter than me, knows, knows the right way to do it. But what if we could augment what clearly is not working super well? Which is, is the sort of sort of human, human condition condition at the port of Los, port Angeles, of Los Angeles by having, by having smaller, smaller regional, regional ports, ports and Detroit, and Detroit is poised to be that. Like if, like I, if I if I can run down the St. Lawrence River, River to, to Detroit, Detroit, and I'm, I might be wrong, but wrong geography, so somebody has to do that. Um, um, but if, if I could if I could do that, and it was, and it was at, at a tenth of the scale, scale of these triple E ships, ships, that's okay. That's okay. If, if if I'm selling luxury goods, goods and I can get them there that much faster, I can upcharge it. Why not? And I'm willing to pay for it because I just waited three weeks for my new laptop from Apple because it was stuck in a port in Los Angeles. There's got to be a reason that the Great Lakes lakes are not utilized in that fashion already. Well, yes, it is. Um, And, I mean, it's because you're right. Well, it's because it's a river. And so you have limitations on the the draft of a ship. The size and scale, yeah. Right? So you can't – those triple E ships have a 50-foot draft, so that keel is touching the ground in the river. But in the lake, it's not. And so – it's probably some combination of barge traffic um, or smaller ships, smaller ships that can handle those sorts of rivers. I think that there's something to this. I don't, I, and I'm, I'm probably some sort of wrong about it. I also, <laughs> I also think rail is an option that we haven't fully sussed out in this country or spent enough time thinking about. I know a lot of people have spent time and, and money thinking about bullet trains for um, travel, but we haven't talked at all about shipping goods that way. That's the future I want to see for real estate. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you look in, in New York City, and 
most of the spots, right? I mean, there are some there are some locations where they threw it up in the air right next to an apartment complex, and of course, that's going to devalue the property, but it still is going to go up because it's New York City. But most of the real estate that is at a hub where people are entering and exiting the subway is some of the most expensive real estate in the country. Yeah. And it's because everyone's using that mass transit. And here's a great, I mean, think about how much traffic goes by that. Yeah. That would be so positive for Nashville. It's, it's interesting that, you know, there were buyers that speculatively bought along Gallatin and East Nashville back when they were talking about possibly having transit go through here, which, you know, they ended up overpaying because it never happened. It will. It, I hope. Dickerson. Uh, well, I think Dickerson. it's going to happen in both places. I think it has to. You think? Yeah. I would love for that, but Nashville keeps saying no. It will say yes. It will. We just need some more Californians. <laughs> we need uh, we need a, a, a chain of custody for leadership that is uninterrupted by scandal. Um, yeah. And we need thoughtful city council members who are forward-thinking that aren't so reactionary. There's a few of them that are there right now, but not nearly enough of them. And we're spending too much of our time um, regulating the silly things, silly stuff, and not enough time thinking about the things that really actually affect most people. Um, and I think that's a that's a tr- shame. That's a tragedy. We 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 need to spend more time thinking about the big things. This is obviously going off on a tangent, but do you think that Nashville has too many councilmen in or, or council members? Uh, for them to be as effective or at least at the caliber that the city needs. Yeah, because, I mean, if, if we had half as many council members, I feel like the elections would be far more difficult. You'd have higher quality people. I mean, Nashville has, what, the most council members? In a- the largest council in the country is Chicago. We're the second. Chicago has 1.8 million residents in the city. We have 700,000. And how, what are the council? Do you know the numbers of the council members in Chicago compared to Nashville? I don't. I mean, um, Nashville's what, 35, 40? I don't think it's quite that many. Um, I mean, we could look. Gosh, if there was some tool that we could use. If so. only we had a computer <laughs> oh, to look that up. But I, here, here's what I know it, it, it is, it doesn't really actually matter what the numbers are. We're second behind one of the top five largest cities in the country. It's true. That's absurd. I mean, if we're going to be that big, that's great. Um, watch now as Tyler and I try to do math in, in three. No, it's got 35. Okay. Do that. Yep. 30, 35. 35 districts. And I assume that includes that large council people. I don't think it does. Yeah, so it might be as many so as District 30. 1. So we've got six more at large. Yeah. So 41. Yeah. That's absurd. And I think, by the way, I think the at-large model is a really smart one. Um, though I could name a few of the people on here that I don't think should be in office. Um, of course. I, I think that the at-large model is a really good idea. You know, when you start when you start cutting cities apart the way that we have and putting them into districts, the thought process on the surface is really smart. Let's try to get a neighborhood's perspective and give that neighborhood a voice. The problem is that that's not really where it comes from, right? And so the the history behind how council districts are carved is not dissimilar to how congressional districts are, are carved. And it has a really gross past um, that's steeped in racism. It's steeped in all sorts of um, suppressionism. Yep. And we need to address that up front and say, 
this is not just bad from a social perspective. It's bad economically because we can't get out of our own way to make decisions because we have so many people making so few decisions that affect everybody. That's not a good good way to do business. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's that's one of the many reasons that we're focused on the wrong issues. I think yeah. everybody gets so caught up on this issue that affects their tiny little neighborhood, and then they just blow it up, and that's, and right. that's, that's exactly what we're facing. Anyway, let's get back on Sorry. topic. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, Nathan and I could clearly talk about this stuff forever. Um, this is another emerging trend okay. from ULI. Investment in alternative sectors. So real estate investment trusts and private investors have been much quicker to embrace a broader variety of alternative sectors, mm-hmm. ranging from niches such as student housing to life sciences, data centers, and cold storage. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's true. You, I mean, I, we talked about that a little bit at the beginning here, yep. which is um, institutional investors or REITs, um, you know, Real estate investment trusts, everybody thought that all they were doing were buying houses. But that's not what, I mean, it's a real estate investment trust. And so those fund managers are smart. They're very smart. Um, And they are going out and they're identifying the right um, asset classes in which to invest money to mitigate risk and enhance uh, whatever the stated purpose of that that REIT is, if it's income generating or if it's tax tax sort of deferrals or if it's just growth oriented. And so they've been very smart about how they diversify. Small investors like you and I would be well served to look at the smallest asset classes that those REITs and institutional investors own and start thinking about putting money into those. Yep. Because it's, you know, there is a, there's a tipping point where they won't invest in it because it's too small. But that's our opportunity. Yeah. Why wouldn't we spend the money in, like, it, you know, for years? So I built several buildings in Nashville and they were always like 20 apartments and five to 10,000 square feet of retail, right? Institutional investors wouldn't even look at it. Right, not because it wasn't good. They, um, like we talked to them. They said it's great. It's just too little. Like, what what am I going to do with that? Well, when you've got a hedge fund, you know, account manager that's assigned a billion dollars that he has to spend, he can't look at that and go, "I can spend thirty here." Right, exactly. Yeah, and so you know that same hedge fund manager looks at they've got a number. They say she she looks at it and she says, "All right, that's a hundred units. That's my minimum." What are they generating? What's the time value of money? And she makes a decision based on that. The next person gets out there and says, okay, my number is 75 units, and I need it to be this. But all, both of them say anything less than 50, not touching it because it's too small. I would have to own dozens of them, and that's too much real estate on a square footage basis for too little return. Too many headaches, that's too many right. different roof structures, too many different MEPs. I mean, right, it's- exactly. And so... <clears throat> now we start looking at those and we think, okay, well, you know what? As it turns out, I wasn't able to sell any of those to institutional investors, but I still made money on them. Yeah. And so I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> we beat ourselves up about it. We're like, oh, we're not attractive to anybody. Look how hard this is. Well, no, that's not true. We're yeah. attractive to lots of people. We're just not attractive to the, the, the prettiest girl in the room, right? And so 
that's okay. That's all right. Well, and and I would say nine times out of ten, you don't necessarily want to be attractive to the prettiest girl in the room because they have buying power. Yeah. Which means they have options and they've got money and they can beat you up on price if they want. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of uh, the investors that are going to be buying properties like what you have, they're probably in a 1031 exchange. Yeah. And what you're what you've got is perfect for them. They're like it's not too big. It's it's I mean it's Well we start looking small. at it from an emotional perspective, and that's a good thing actually. Yeah. We start thinking about, okay, now I'm in now I'm involved in a transaction with somebody that I can actually have a conversation with. And that's important because when we're talking about little stuff like this, having an emotional attachment to it starts to become value. We have to start looking at it a little bit more like residential real estate than maybe we did before. Right. And that's okay. Yeah, I think that's totally fine. I mean, there's there's this playing field that you and I have kind of found ourselves in where it's not institutional and it's not really mom and pop. Right. So you have, I mean, there it's like a blue ocean where there's almost no competition, which is a lot of fun to play in. Because it's a great then you book, get to by get, the way. Yeah, it's a great book. That, that book has like defined everything that yeah. we do as a business. Blue Ocean Strategy. Look it up. Yeah, it's my number one book. Um, well, not open for business? <laughs> not open for business. Yeah. What is happening here? There it is. <laughs> I'm not promoting my own book. Um, but yeah, I uh, it, it's such a good book. But yeah, it's it's that's a great niche because you don't mm-hmm. you just don't have to compete. Now you'll have different issues that you have to put up of with. Of course you will. Lenders being one, buyers yeah. being another. But you can manage that risk. And the nice thing is that you have an entire group of people that can't afford the big stuff, but they can afford the little stuff. And so if you end up in a situation where one of those buyers can't perform, you've got a whole, you got a line. Yeah. And that's good. Lines are good. It's exactly what you want. Yeah. All right. Another emerging trend from ULI is the great relocation. Ah, yes. So I asked a question of the chief economical economic analyst of CNBC when I was at NAR this last week. I was the only person in the room who got to ask a question. So I had to... I, thought long and hard about it, right? And I asked him, I said, what do you think the effect of catalyzed uh, migration based on jobs and climate will have on a few things? Um, Onshoring of production, so industrial production, we all know that presently there's a big effort to onshore a lot of that stuff from China, and lots of that has to do with some geopolitical unrest between China and Taiwan, um, and that's a big deal. We don't we don't want that, so we're onshoring a lot more of that. But also, there's a climate element here. So, as climate patterns change and people are moving, um, how does that catalyze a change in the business environment? And I think it's really interesting. Um, Migration is something that economists have looked at for a long time and spent a lot of time theorizing about what's going to happen. Well, the pandemic changed that like everybody else. Because Accelerated it. Now, so I've got a little a little piece of property on 30A. I'm super proud of it. It's something that I worked my whole life to have, so it's something I'm really excited about. And two years ago, I could go down there in the off-season, and I could spend time effectively by myself. Like, it was great. Pandemic hits, there's no off-season. Like, none. Why? Because people moved there. They didn't just go there to vacate. Oh, they yeah. moved there. Interesting. Because they could. 
And so what does that do? It opens up massive tracts in the center of the country. And so what happens to them? They become ghost towns? I don't think so. If the real estate is affordable enough, we start seeing what happened in Austin happen in Des Moines or happen in um, French Lick, Indiana or some other place like that, right? Because it just becomes affordable and it becomes easy. You You can build enormous production spaces. The city wants you there because they lost all the people. They didn't lose all the people. That's me yeah. hyperbolizing. But um, <laughs> Sky's so, falling. Right. So you start seeing migration patterns change based on that. And like you said earlier, the ability to manage something from afar has become so ubiquitous that I can have you build a production facility in the middle of nowhere. Think uh, like Casper, Wyoming which is beautiful, by the way. If you ever want to go someplace, it's beautiful. But there's nothing there. So I decide I'm going to build a 3 million square foot production plant in the middle of Casper, Wyoming, because it's $2,500 an acre, and I can buy all of the acres if Ted Turner will let them go, right? (laughs) Um, And I can sit on the beach and manage the production of that facility from 3,000 miles away. It doesn't negate the need to increase employment, right? So Casper, Wyoming becomes a natural beneficiary of this. There are jobs still, even though we've largely automated the facilities. We've drawn down the cost of consumer goods sufficiently where it will eventually have an impact on inflation, which is good. Yep. And so that can then reduce the, the climb that needs the delta between cost of consumer goods and current wages is so great right now. That's why we keep hearing wages haven't risen enough because they're not matching inflation. Well, if you can change the delta of that significantly enough, it starts to become really affordable for people. Um, and I think that that's something that's going to be really interesting to watch in the next. That's a long play. That's a 10, 15, 20-year play. But it's going to happen. Watch it. Well, yeah, I mean, look at what Amazon's already doing with their with their facilities. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's almost all robots. It's all automated. Look, I mean, they bought all the malls, right? Like, yep. uh, oh, you've got a, a big, giant, million square foot space that you can't lease up. Yeah, we'll take that. We'll take it for nothing. Yeah, and it all has drop ceilings, so I can run miles and miles of electrical conduit in there. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, they just have to be centrally located, which is the only difference there. But it's the exact same. I mean, you have a production facility. Why would you go into the into the suburbs of some other city? I mean, I mean, in that case too. Hey. Visiting Wyoming is now a write-off. It's a business expense. Sounds like Tyler's flying to Wyoming tomorrow. <laughs> it sounds like I'm flying to Wyoming. Um, let's see. We talked about this one a little bit. This is another one. Uh, working from home may mean less need for office space. So let's, let me clarify what Uli says about that, because I've, I have disagreed vehemently since day one what everybody was saying about office space being dead. Uh, But I think what they say is right. Industry leaders predict that the need for office space will likely decrease 5 to 15% within the next three years. Office tenants will look to redesign the space they have and do more with less to accommodate new ways of hybrid working. I think it's absolutely true. Not 100% right. I mean, 5 to 15%, of course. Mm -hmm. The way that we work has changed. There's no way that you can get around that. Um, I mean, I'm looking at my office now, and if we didn't have this room in here, I mean, I've got that room over there for all the brokers. No one ever uses either of them. 
If, right. if I was, if we weren't recording in here, I never even used my own office. Right. I'm at retrograde or out in meetings. Thank you. You're yeah. welcome. Yes. <laughs> thank, um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, it's really interesting because what it has done is it's opened the door for other businesses to start. So you've, you've inadvertently created an incubator environment because all of these spaces need to get filled, but they can get filled at a lower rent. And so small businesses, small startups that want to get rolling, it's how they do it. That's why they've always looked at the WeWorks and the 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 industriouses of the world. Um, I think that there's a great opportunity there. Um, it's going to be exciting to watch what happens with innovation in the next few years because it's it's going to be exciting. Yeah, I agree. I think the future of commercial real estate is very exciting. It's very bright, um, and it'll be interesting to see just what changes over the next few years. I think that this is something that is really important to to share, and I've got some stats around this, so I'm going to share it. Yeah, because I'm not, I, I can't remember everything the way I used to. Um, let's see, got to be organized. Here? I know I'm not as or- ah. So here we go. So this economist, who I think is very smart, um, was talking about um, equivalencies, and so how do we? Because everybody wants to ask. Is this, a, is this a bubble? Is this a bubble? Is, is what's happening right now a bubble? Is the market going to crash? What's going to happen? Well, the, he was the first person to really put it into the right kind of perspective, I think. And he described what's happening right now more like a wartime economic condition Interesting. than anything we've seen before. And he was able to pinpoint moments where there was direct parity between the unemployment rate, the current sort of vacancy rates, the people that are just out of the job market, um, something like four and a half million people are in this country are presently out of work, but not because of choice. So everybody's having trouble hiring people, right? Well, those folks are not making an active decision to stay out of the workforce just because they don't like working. They're having to not be in the workforce because the pandemic has rendered schools unreliable, they not in not in the way they educate. I don't want pe- public educators to think that I'm denigrating them. I love public educators, but whether the school is going to be in session is a a problem. And so working moms have had to stay home. Working dads have had to stay home, um, and they're not actually working. So they're counted as out of the labor force. Right. Um, and that's a direct correlation to what happened after the first and second world wars, or during the first and second world wars, where. Dad went off to war. Mom couldn't work. Now, it happened that in the Second World War, many of them had to. So they had the Rosie the Riveter thing had to happen, right? Um, But by and large, people were out of the workforce. So we had, if it wasn't for government spending, we would have seen a recession that made the Great Depression look like a blip, right? Interesting, yeah. The government stimulus is important, and it serves a purpose. So the infrastructure bill that passed, whether and plenty of people can disagree with me about it, that was important. That kind of stimulus spending is the sort of thing that's going to provide the, the, the third leg that keeps us stable while we start building this new economy. And that's really a value. I hadn't heard anybody equate the pandemic to wartime economic conditions, and it makes a lot of sense. And so as we start thinking about what came out of the Second World War um, or the First World War, well, lots of ingenuity, lots of industriousness, almost 
every modern industrial product we can think of. It was a boom. It was massive. Industrialization happened obviously before that, but then think about the spike after the Second World War. How home building was massive after the Second World War. Look out, 2022. I mean, we now have lumber mills that are back in full production, and the late the this is you're going to get added a ton for this, so don't put my email. <laughs> we have to start letting people back into the country, so. Yeah the labor force is so diminished that we've made it almost impossible to build things. And it's so true. we need workers. Look, I, I have that conversation with my grandfather all the time <laughs> because I mean, and it's, and it's the perfect like uh, dichotomy of generations. Yeah. Right. So my grandfather uh, construction, right. So I grew up working for him in the summers and I mean, he talks all the time about how much he respects the workers that, that work for him and the Hispanics and how hard they worked. I mean, they, because they, dude, I worked alongside them. They, they the worked hustle. harder yeah. than I did. And, uh, but he vehemently disagrees with opening the border. And like to the point where that's one of the few things that we ever argue about. Yeah. So I just, I don't even talk to him about it anymore because I, I disagree. I mean, I think, yeah, we should have checks and we need to be, be sure who's coming across the border. But there's no reason for us to not be less restrictive on it because it helps the labor force. It helps the economy. And it's, I mean, in an, in an economy where the average American is having fewer children, we're either going to have more people come in here to work and spend money here, or our economy is going to start to decline. That's true. Um, there's, so there's the political conversation that you all can have over Thanksgiving next week. Oh, here we go. It is... Um, whether or not immigrants pay taxes and their fair share. And I will render the argument that many, many illegal immigrants pay taxes right, and get almost no basic services for the taxes that they pay. Um, and I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, um, but when the policies that are currently in place were put in, many of them bailed because they no longer had the ability to send money home, which was the whole point. Yeah, it was right, right here. Right. And so we created a different kind of condition that was very bad. Um, I want to talk – I'm going to get off of this one for a second. Cause well, we, and looping that back, I mean, that negatively impacts commercial real estate. Absolutely. It, com it affects every segment of the economy. I mean, if retail cannot hire the workers that they need, they're going to have to operate fewer hours. Mm-hmm. They cannot afford to pay as much in rent. Yeah. Like, it's just, you know, I, I know that obviously that may seem like we just went on somewhat of a tangent, but that does have a direct correlation on the value of real estate. Yeah. Um, I, Gabriel is, is yeah, I think, so, highlighting my point here, um, which is good. Gabriel said, hey, Mr. Tyler, I had a conversation with you some time ago on LinkedIn. It's been proven that immigration increases demand and thus results in more job creation. That's 100% true. Yeah. And, I, I mean, that... There's an awful lot behind that, and I actually, I think if we can stop politicizing it as a threat, because I, I don't believe that there is a physical threat that exists because of, of, of immigration. I am not advocating for open borders, by the way. Yeah, absolutely um, not. But, because we don't want any more Canadians. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm joking. I'm totally joking. Like half um, my audience is from Canada, right. man. Sorry. <laughs> You're great, eh? Um <laughs> You did say something a minute ago that That's I think hilarious. is really interesting. And the economist for CNBC said this, and I hadn't thought about this, but 
He said, you know, millennials, that's you, um, <laughs> <His eye. laughs> um, are going through what he described as family formation. And so, and again, this was a post-war mm-hmm. condition that created the baby boomer generation. GIs got back from war. They're like, life is precious. Let's do this. And they started having these families. Literally, let's do this, right? Um, <laughs> and I, he argues, and I think he's probably right, that presently we're in a decline in birth rates in this country. That's a proven fact. But he thinks that's all going to change in the next five to ten years. Interesting. And I think he's right uh, because your generation is the largest. We're just having babies later. Yes, that's okay. You're having them later, but you also hadn't thought about family formation until you were given the conditions that forced your hand, right? And so I think that what that has done is created a circumstance that is going to lead to the next great generation, right? And so I am not on the, 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 the bandwagon of millennials are bad. They don't, they're making everything worse. I don't know. I'm, I'm the, I'm the get-off-my-lawn guy, right? Yeah. But um, I don't think that's true. I think that we're it's a different generation. They're demanding more out of the things that are given to them or the things that they're asking for. They're demanding more from that. That's not bad. We should ask for the most out of everything. Um, Kanye West. Didn't think that was going to get no, referenced here on go. here. Kanye West on um, <laughs> My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with David Letterman said something that I thought was really interesting. And if you tune out everything else that he said, which is an okay thing, and you just regurgitate this one piece, he said, I want everybody to be the maximum version of themselves. 100% agree with that. Wow. And it was Would very, not expect that out of Kanye. Well, it was probably the last smart thing that I heard from him. <laughs> um, that's not true. He's very creative and, and probably a very smart guy. But I think that that was really wise. We want people to be the the best the the most maximum he didn't say the best he said the most maximum version of themselves cool why is that valuable i like that you see it all right the good the bad the ugly all of it is out there and so we can make decisions about who is best to service this need in this moment based on that and who isn't i think it's really interesting i like that we should just rename this the socio-political real estate investment show with tyler cobble (laughs) That's an interesting question there. Uh, Gabriel is saying, what do you think of malls turning into apartment complexes in the long run? Terrible idea. What? Oh, terrible idea. Okay, well, not in their current physical condition. They cannot. I think think there's not enough natural light. I don't think that the depths and all that kind of stuff work. I think building on top of those malls, apartment units. Sure. Yeah, if you're going to do traditional adaptive reuse, I think it's a terrible use of that space, right? You've got dead space in the center of malls. It's so inefficient. It's so inefficient. But you're right. If you wanted to build on top of it, sure, that works. I don't know that it's the same as if you build it, they will come. Right. Um, And so I I think that's a a gamble that I probably wouldn't be willing to take. I would totally take it. I love that about you. I would hands down take that gamble. So, and here's the reason why. So I am a huge believer in mixed-use projects. Uh I think that malls uh, are inherently in some of the best locations within a city. And that may, you know, they may not necessarily be the most trafficked or the most uh, popular, but they are in some of the best geographic locations within a city because some developers 30 years ago, 40 years ago, spent a lot of time and a lot of money making sure that that was in the right area. Mm -hmm. 
So a lot of these malls are actually right off the interstate. They're on street corners. They're on very highly trafficked corridors. So you have strong access everywhere. The problem with malls isn't the amount of retail on site. It's the lack of residential. And so if you bring the opportunity for people to, now you've got to announce like, hey, here's how we're going to change the commercial. You can't just build an apartment complex on a mall site and expect people to be like, cool, I'm going to go live at this dead mall. Uh, but I think that you can get creative with it and make it happen. I hope you're right about that. So, I mean, the thing I will say is that I, for a long time I lived in Pentagon City, which is right near the Pentagon. Um, <laughs> and there's a very famous mall there, the Pentagon City Mall. There was a hotel connected to it, uh, the Ritz-Carlton. Um, and there were apartment buildings on every single side of it, but nothing attached to it. So I think that that says a little something because somebody... When, when was that? 15 years ago. So it was before the decline of the malls. Um, I would say it was at the beginning. Okay. But I mean, I that's might fair. be wrong. About I mean, two thousand six. Right? I mean, yeah. yeah, that's probably the beginning of the end. Um, but I think that one of the biggest challenges with malls is they take up a ton of square footage, and in order for them to be economically viable, all of the rentable square footage in those spaces really has to be filled. Oh yeah, and even if you build on top of it. You do not have the kinds of infrastructure in place presently to accommodate multiple restaurants, multiple salons, bowling alleys, movie theaters, all those things. It's very expensive. It's very expensive. And the adaptive reuse of those kinds of facilities, you know, grease traps alone, massively expensive. And so I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, and I'm not saying... I. I'm, I love being wrong, so that's something that's interesting about me. I like I I crave being wrong because I I'm not I'm I'm never gonna learn anything. So I hope <laughs> I'm wrong about this, but I think that utilizing that existing space for a different purpose is a better way to use that than to attach something to it and hope that it then generates the kind of interest you need to make it economically viable. Yeah, I, th I think you're right with that. I, I don't think that you could just build an apartment complex and be like, hey, it's done. Now the mall will come back to life. I mean, yeah. it's uh, malls are inherently dead. I mean, you think about the reason that they are so inefficiently designed is because they were expecting a lot of people, mm -hmm. 80s and 90s, to go hang out and spend their evenings or spend their days at the mall. And you just don't do that anymore. Now, the ones that I think can be reused, maybe that way, maybe that way, are ones in city centers. So, like, there's a big mall in downtown Seattle that is basically in the base of a bunch of office buildings. Yeah. And that space could be turned into almost anything you wanted it to be. Um, I think that those ones have a much better shot at, moving towards a residential application, um, which is what you're describing, Gabriel. Um, I don't think that ones that exist out in the periphery where parking lots are a huge component of them um, have the same chance. The nice thing about those ones in city centers is they're vertically integrated. Yep. And so you've got parking way down low. Then you've got this retail component. Then you have this office component above that. I think in the next 20 to 30 years, you'll start to see – towers going up at the Green Hills Mall. Well, I, it still won't bring me out there. 
<laughs> Absolutely not. In fact, it will make <laughs> me stay even further away. But I mean, you look at what Ver- the precedent that Virtus set. Yeah. And the Green Hills Mall sits on the largest landmass. This is massive. And at some point, they're not going to be able to expand anymore. I mean, you're still going to have to have some parking or some structure or something like that. I think that you will start to see malls and areas like that develop on top of it because you're right. Like you look at Chicago. I mean, all of the malls are in the, like the first four floors of a tower. Yeah. So why not just go back and redevelop it? You know that those buildings are already built so structurally sound, they could probably house that anyway. Yeah. For some I, reinforcement. Gabriel says something interesting here. So, Gabriel, I was in Costa Rica in two... Th- interesting. In when, What year was it? Let me read the question. Here, here yeah. in Costa Rica, mall culture is still very big since we were a developing country. Yeah. Um, so I was in Costa Rica when, in I guess in... Let's see, I have to do the math here. Sorry. 1993. Yeah, I, nine, was, I was one year old. Yeah, well, I wasn't. Um, <laughs> in 1993, I was in Costa Rica, and Costa Rica was still a what would be described as a developing country. Um, you're describing it that way now, but I think any place that has a Four Seasons, it's hard to describe as a developing country. Could be wrong about that. Well, there's probably a bit of a... It's a small country. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about Costa Rica is it's one of only a few countries in the world that has coasts on both of the yeah. oceans. Um, and that's really interesting. Very but strategic. When I was there, San Jose was this incredible epicenter of growth. That was in the early 90s. Um, and it had become this... Ma- I mean, it was... It felt like what Mexico City feels like today. Really? Which is just incredible. Um, and so and there was building then, too, even though it was it, it was really at the front end of things. Um, and I think that Costa Rica is a great test case for what can be successful. Now, I think you're having some political challenges in your country that are maybe going to make that a little bit more challenging, and that comes with the territory of growing. Um but because of all that building that happened 25 years ago, I think that you do have, um, yeah, that's what I'm talking Economically about. Economically speaking, we were significantly worse off than in the 90s. Yeah, wow. I mean, that, that's, that's a political challenge, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I think that that largely is representative of um, uh, uh, what happens with emerging economies, which is a corruptness in the government. And so the money's not being allocated correctly. Um, that will change. I hold out hope. Go to the beach. Go to Liberia. Enjoy yourself. It'll be okay. Yeah, I like Costa Rica. I mean, they've got a phenomenal tourism market, and I think that once that starts coming back, it's gonna boom. It's a little bit of a one-trick pony, right? They, it's too small of a country for big production to happen, yeah. and so what do they? What can they really stick their their hands in? Tourism. Um, when I was there, this is fun. So my father was in the Peace Corps, and he was teaching English in Costa Rica back then. And so when I visited, we went out to what is now a really famous tourist destination, um, which is Volcan Arenal, which is this big active volcano in, in Costa Rica. And Volcan Arenal, at the time, the only way that you could really you could hike along the lava flow, that was allowed, but there was a biological station that sat on one of the peaks adjacent to the volcano. You could sleep there if you were in the science or economic development industry. And so 
we were wow. able to spend the night there and it would boom every 20 or 30 minutes and there was a seismograph in there and you could see in the darkness like the lava flow glow in the distance it was crazy that's um, so cool but we had to pay is totally off topic sorry um <laughs> we had to pay a kid at the base of the volcano so we had rented a little car but you had to ford a river to get to the biological station so we paid a kid to sleep with the car all night so that the car wouldn't get stolen and we hopped onto somebody's land rover and then went up the mountain that way um it, costa rica is a really interesting place it's not it's following the same pattern that many of the central american countries have which is they're so small that they have trouble producing something that's valuable industry. enough for the rest of the world to to really pay them for and so they have to create an industry, and that largely is around tourism because they're in a really beautiful place. Or they fall victim to what so many of those Central and South American countries has, which is the drug trade. Yeah. Um, and I really hope that doesn't happen to Costa Rica because Costa Rica is really beautiful. Yeah, I've got a buddy that's headed out there in the next few weeks, and uh, <laughs> he's saying, no worries. I'm really enjoying hearing you guys speak. Well, we really appreciate that, Gabriel. Thank you. Um, yeah, he's he's going out to Costa Rica in a, in a few weeks, and I'm jealous. I'm like, man, I, I haven't been out there. Oh, it's I mean, beautiful. I mean, it's so pretty. At least, I mean, it, it was 25 years ago. I imagine it's probably the same now. Oh, uh, way better, probably. I mean, we it was hit or miss if there was power. When wow. I was there, I mean, it was that much of an emerging country, and I mean, it was beautiful then. It was just spectacular. You know, it's one of the few places in the world where you can travel through. Almost every ecological layer of atmosphere in a single day. So really? from desert all the way up into sort of high desert to rainforest to cloud forest all the way to to alpine and it like all that within a day, which is really interesting. Really, mm -hmm. that's really cool. Well, Nathan, wrapping up this conversation, do you have any final thoughts on market predictions for 2022 and and beyond? I would pay attention very closely to. Um, to predictive analytics and companies that invest in data, um, but not necessarily traditional data sources. So I would look at those. I would pay very close attention to um, CoStar and how they move in the next couple of years. And from a commercial perspective, I would start looking at potential commercial assets that you're, you're looking at as, as an investment and thinking about different ways that you could hold those assets or repurpose them. Because I think that if you start to, to skin the cat a bunch of different ways, your likelihood of success down the road is much, much higher. And your ability to pivot, which is going to be the, like the key word for everybody in the next few years, is, is you're much more nimbly able to pivot. And so I think that that's a really important thing. I completely agree. I mean, those are all great points. And I'll leave us with... One point about Nashville specifically, if you look at Nashville, the economy here is so heavily tied to job growth that as we continue to have jobs incoming, Nashville is likely going to continue to thrive. And we've already got a pretty solid economic base with healthcare, tech, education, I mean, you name it, the music, the city's got it. And, and those are all relatively recession-proof industries. Nashville's kind of set to boom for the next five or 10 years, seven to 10 years, because Amazon still hasn't finished rolling out their employee base, and they probably won't for another couple of years. Oracle just announced 8,500 jobs that they're going to be rolling out over the next 10 years. 
So you look at that and then all the ancillary companies that will be coming to this city to serve and work alongside them because just because the giant 8,500 employee announcement hits the papers doesn't mean that there's not another 100 employee company that's moving here and a 200 employee company, you know, a thousand Mm -hmm. people that will all come to Nashville because of that. So uh, pay attention to the job growth in Nashville. I think that's going to be a big economic factor um, as to whether we'll continue to grow or, or not. We will. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're going to crush it. So thank you all for joining us live here on the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. If you are listening on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review so that we can get in front of more individuals who are interested in learning about commercial real estate. If you are watching on the YouTube channel, please leave us a like uh, and uh, subscribe. And we will see you all next time. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.